Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood coming back at you again with story time. Been a good week at the Kingswood abode. Uh, lots and lots of turkey for Thanksgiving, and a lot fewer leftovers than I thought I'd have. Only got a 25-pound bird this year, and with visitors and everything else, and geez, everybody ate a lot of turkey. I was thinking we'd have weeks worth of leftovers, but <laughs> no, apparently not. Oh well, it is what it is. Uh, we won't waste too much time here. We'll uh, go straight back into the story. This is uh, part five of the champion. Should be the last part. Uh, when last we left Tim, he was down at Hilton Head and had encountered the bad guy in his little beach house lot. And unfortunately for Tim, the bad guy has goons, and guns, and rope, and yeah, looks pretty ugly. Find out what happens next. The Champion. Modern fantasy novella written by me. Read by me. And once again, I apologize for my unprofessional reading. Part 5. Oh crap, I muttered and turned to run. And I was stopped within a step by the report of Capano's gun being fired and a piece of turf kicking up just in front of me. Next one goes in your chest, Capano said. Don't move. He chuckled viciously. It'll hurt less. The two guys grabbed me. I tried to struggle, but I almost never work out, and I certainly never learned how to fight. I was like putty in their hands. Inside of a minute, they tied me hand and foot, pulled the canvas bag over my head, and pulled the drawstring tight. Then they picked me up by my shoulders and my feet. I began swinging back and forth, and I heard one of the men counting. One, what the? Two, oh crap, three. I opened my mouth to speak, but all that came out was a short scream as they released me, and I fell somewhere. Into the hole, I thought. I landed with a soft splat. The bottom was more mud than dirt. Gotta love the high water table in the coastal south. The breath left my lungs, and I spent a moment coughing and gasping. The bag over my head did not help matters at all. It made breathing very difficult and was already unbearably hot. This was bad. Really bad. Enjoy your stay, Capano said from above me. Then he muttered something more quietly to the two men. A moment later, I heard a loud engine start up, probably one of the digging machines in the yard. Then rocks, pebbles, and loose dirt fell on me, and I felt a surge of dread. They were filling in the hole with me in it. Dread turned to terror as I contemplated being buried alive. I rolled away from the area where the dirt came down, but only managed to roll about three-quarters of a turn before my shoulder struck something hard. The statue. But why was it still here? I thought getting it was the whole point. The sounds from the digger grew louder, and again I felt and heard another scoop of dirt fall into the hole. There would be time enough to figure out what was going on later. Now I need to get the hell out of there. Somehow. I squirmed around, trying in vain to get to my feet. All I managed to do was slam my cheek into the corner of the statue's base. I saw stars and felt a stabbing pain, then wetness as I began to bleed. Son of a... Thoughts of a complaint vanished as I realized what had just happened. 
Another pile of dirt fell down as I pushed with my feet, slowly maneuvering my hands to the statue's corner. I traced the edge with my fingers and felt a surge of hope. It was rough, almost sharp. Praying silently that I would have enough time, I squirmed around until I had the rope binding my hands running along the edge, then I started rubbing it back and forth. It took forever, or at least it seemed that way. But when you're tied up, blind in a pit, and a thug is continually raining dirt and rocks down on you, time can be a little hard to judge. The side of the pit I just rolled away from was beginning to fill in. My legs and lower abdomen were now covered in dirt. The weight of the earth was substantial, but I could still move. For now. I was just beginning to think that by the time I got the rope cut, I'd be buried anyway when the rope snapped. I stopped in surprised disbelief. It had worked. Another pile of dirt falling down was all the encouragement I needed to get moving. I yanked my hands free of the rope and pulled the bag off my head. Daylight made me cringe and clench my eyes shut, but that discomfort was nothing compared to the sheer bliss of fresh, cool air. It says something that the South Carolina summer heat was cooler than the inside of that bag. I was tempted to sit there and just enjoy breathing, but I heard the digger coming back. There was no time to waste. I hauled myself out from under the dirt and set to work on the rope binding my feet. It took a lot less time to get the knot untied than it had to cut through the rope. By the time the thug dumped the next load of dirt, I was free and clambering to my feet. The hole was about a third full, the dumped dirt making a sort of ramp up to one side, where the thug had been dumping it. The statue was at my feet, but there was nothing else close to hand. I pondered for a moment, then hefted it. It was about two feet tall, but not terribly heavy. Maybe 30 pounds. Part of me wanted to leave it behind and just go, but I knew the statue was the key to this whole thing. Plus, it might make a nice cudgel to hit the thugs with. I saw the little bulldozer backing up from the lip of the hole. Its scoop was raised, so there's a good chance the thug at the wheel could not see me. I scrambled up the ramp of dirt, having to claw and dig my way up. By the time I reached the top and peeked over the rim of the hole, the bulldozer was scooping up another load. The Asian guy was at the wheel, alone. I glanced around quickly and could not see the other thug. I ducked back down beneath the lip of the rim as the thug turned the bulldozer back toward the hole. I waited, the bulldozer's noise growing louder by the second. Then the scoop appeared, moving forward above the lip of the hole. It stopped moving and I surged upward, pulling myself out of the hole completely. The scoop tipped forward, dumping out its load of dirt as I reached my feet. The thug's eyes widened in surprise. He took his hands from the wheel, his right dipping toward his gun. I had only seconds to act. I bounded forward, raising the statue in both hands as I leapt up onto the step beside the bulldozer's driver's seat. The thug's eyes grew even wider as I brought the statue down full force. Crack! The statue struck the thug in the left shoulder. He bellowed and went over to the right, still in his seat. I struck again. This time, the statue struck his head. His body went limp and he fell from the driver's seat, landing on the turf beside the bulldozer with a dull thud. I stood there, amazed that my gambit had worked and gasping for breath for several moments before I remembered the second thug. I was a sitting duck if he was lurking around here somewhere, but he was nowhere to be seen when I turned around to look. I did not stop to question where he went. I just ran as fast as I could back to my car. Back at my room, I stripped off all my clothes and took a long, cold shower, then got dressed in a clean shirt and khakis and drank several glasses of water. Once I was feeling human again, I sat down at the table where I had placed the statue, and I examined it. Maybe it was well-crafted back when it had been made, but now it did not look like much. It was weathered, eroded by dozens of decades, exposed to the elements. All the same, it was beautiful in its simple depiction of a woman's love for her child. I sniffed softly. Of course, this was not supposed to be just any child, or just any woman. 
But there were countless renditions of Madonna and Child in this world. Why was this one so important? I turned the statue around on the table. To my eye, it still gave off a soft glow. But as I looked more closely, I could see that the glow was not uniform. One place near the center of the statue, just below where Mary cradled the baby Jesus, glowed more strongly than the rest. I leaned forward and gasped. There, barely visible against the rest of the stone, were subtle cracks, as though there was a panel in the statue. I felt it round the cracks, my intuition telling me that the real prize was there, within that panel. How Capano missed it, I had no idea, but there it was. Several minutes later, my elation turned to dejection. I could find no way to open it. No latch, no button, no lever, nothing. Maybe Capano had seen the panel after all and simply failed to get it open. In lieu of accessing the treasure within, he simply decided to bury it so no one could have it. That seemed a fitting course of action for the Dark Champion, which did not tell me how I was going to get it open. After several minutes of trying, I ran out of ideas except for a crowbar or hammer, but that would destroy the rest of the statue, and I did not want to go there. Frustrated, I stood up from the table and turned toward the condo's kitchenette. I needed another drink. But as I turned away, I felt a tugging on my chest, something sliding. I looked down and saw the outline of the light emblem beneath my shirt. Instead of hanging straight down, it hung at an angle, pointing toward the statue. I hurriedly pulled the emblem out and saw that it, too, was glowing. The starburst symbol unerringly faced the statue no matter which way I turned. I felt a surge of excitement and sat back down at the table. The emblem began pulling toward the statue more forcefully, so I took the necklace off and held it closer. The emblem swung into the statue in the center of a small panel. There was a bright flash of pure white light, dazzling, but not stunning, and the panel fell open with a soft click. I blinked away purplish spots from my eyes and removed the panel's contents, a leather-bound book that was held closed by a thong. A symbol I did not recognize, a coat of arms probably, was stamped into the front of the book. As I removed the thong, it was stiff with age, and opened the book, the pages crackled softly. I winced, hoping nothing had been damaged, and slowed down. The pages were yellow, brittle. Fading letters, written in tight cursive, filled each page. I recognized enough words from my high school Spanish class to identify the language, but there was no way I was going to be able to translate it. What's more, the thing was several hundred years old. If it was not handled correctly, it could be damaged or destroyed. I needed help. A quick Google search on my laptop showed me where to go. I had gathered up my things and hurried out to the car. A couple of hours later, I drove into downtown Charleston and, weaving through charming tree-lined streets, pulled into a parking garage on Wentworth Street. The College of Charleston, Department of Hispanic Studies, advertised itself on its website as the largest organization of its kind in the Southeast. They could translate the book if anyone could. On my way into town, I called ahead and found the department chair had office hours this afternoon. Pretty lucky, but I was beginning to think luck had nothing to do with it. As I walked into the department chair's office, I was struck, as I usually am in academic institutions, by the feeling of calm scholarship about the place. I could feel the accumulated knowledge of the place oozing from the very walls. Professor Miriam Escobar was a graying woman in her mid-fifties, wearing jeans and a short-sleeved flowery shirt with a narrow collar. I liked her on sight. She was just finishing up with some students when I knocked on her door. She looked up, an eyebrow quirking upward as she saw me and what I carried. You must be the one who called, she said with a wry grin. Nodding, I waited for the students to leave before stepping into her office, closing the door behind me. 
After introductions, I placed the statue and the book down on her desk and quickly explained where I found it, leaving out the bit about guns and almost getting buried alive. This did not seem the right forum for that sort of discussion. The professor's eyebrows lifted as I finished my story, and she clucked at her teeth with her tongue. You'd be surprised how often this sort of thing happens, Mr. Williams. Well, she said, picking up the book. Let's have a look. She opened the cover and looked inside. Her eyes went wide. Three weeks later, I watched an interview on Good Morning America on the TV set in my firm's conference room. Giobald Capano, looking the epitome of understated elegance in his simple but expensive clothing, sat in a stuffed chair between Professor Escobar and another academic type and flashed a winning smile at the anchor's question. It goes without saying, he said, his tone pleasant, ingratiating. When we found this statue on my property, I knew it was important, so I had my associate contact Professor Escobar immediately. Where did you find it? He shrugged. I came upon it while digging out a swimming pool. He flashed his smile again. Just dumb luck. The anchor shook her head, affecting astonishment, then turned to the academic man I did not recognize. Professor Goldstein, why is this find so significant? Well, quite simply, this completely changes our understanding of early European colonization. Here we have the journal of a Spanish priest who started his parish in South Carolina 20 years before we thought were the first Europeans to settle in that region. And he did it, injected Professor Escobar, in a totally different manner than the others elsewhere. Rather than taking advantage of the natives or seeking to convert them, he seems to have actually cared about their culture. When the next Europeans arrived, he appears to have gone out of his way to defend the natives from them. And paid for it with his life, Professor Goldstein managed to sound grieved by this fact. The anchor sighed, a convincing expression of sorrow on her face for a moment. Then she looked back at Capano and brightened again. Now, Mr. Capano, you took things one step further, though, didn't you? Capano nodded. After the professors informed me how important the find was, we realized there were probably more artifacts from the priest's parish on my property. He smiled broadly and managed to look almost angelic. So I decided to donate that property to the College of Charleston, in the interest of science. The anchor smiled along with Capano and shook her head. Truly a generous gesture, she said, as she turned to face the camera, and a fitting cap to a story that sheds new light on the true man of compassion. The segment ended, going to commercial, and I switched off the TV. Well, Jim said from the chair next to me, it sucks we lost the Capano account, but I guess you can't fault his reasons. Nope, I guess not. Jim stood up and clapped me on the shoulder. Oh, well, there's always next time. He strode to the conference room door and looked back at me with a grin. Makes you feel good, though, doesn't it? To know that even back then, there were people who stood up for those who could not defend themselves? I nodded. It did. And that was the point, wasn't it? A nice little story might influence someone else to goodness, or just brighten someone's day. It was small, but it was a victory, and who knows what its ultimate impact might be. Jim left, and I leaned back in my chair. I thought long and hard during the drive to Charleston about how to play it. I decided going to the cops would have been useless. There were no witnesses to what happened, no evidence either way. It would be my word against Capano's, and I could easily see how that would turn out. Besides, was not the light supposed to be the side of forgiveness and compassion? I smiled, thinking about how it must have galled Capano to find out what had happened, especially after the professors contacted him. Yep, I'm a compassionate man. Okay, so that'll do it for the champion. Uh, as usual, I wrote this one a long time ago. I want to say it was 2012. I have to look in the dates again to, to verify it but uh, it's been a while it's been a while since i looked at it and um 
I still like it. Of course I like it. I wrote it. Uh, I think it's a fun, nice little story. Fun and kind of kind of neat. One complaint I remember that somebody told me who had read it uh, said that, man, you had this buildup for this great Titanic clash. It ended up being so small and didn't really feel like a good payoff for the buildup. And I was like, yeah, I guess I can kind of see that. But at the same time, Bartleby said all these battles were going to be small. You know, little small victories adding up over time, not huge cataclysmic things. Uh, so I, I think I went and uh, and uh, pointed that out sufficiently early. But who knows? I could be wrong. Let me know what you think. Uh, I've got uh, ways to contact me on the website. You can leave comments here on the podcast or video feed. And yeah, yeah. See if you agree or disagree. If you like it, don't like it. If you like it, of course, go pick up a copy. Well, you can uh, find it on my website. Find it Amazon, Apple, Kobo, iTunes, anywhere you want to look. And it's in print, too. Uh, so that works out nicely as well. And at some point, I'm going to put an audio book out. And I've been, it's funny. I've been think, thinking lately. It's like, hey, dummy, you've been reading all these stories on your video and podcast channel why don't you take your reading and make audiobooks out of them and some of the earlier ones was pretty rough and i have to re-record those but these last few i'm starting to get the hang of uh how to do it better and i think it sounds better so i think i might to do that take the audio out of here clean it up a little bit repackage it and turn it into audiobooks so short stories read by the author i'm sure that'd be awesome right so I'll look for that to happen in the not too distant future Okay, so yeah, that's what I've got for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, come back next week. But before you do, like, subscribe, share, tell everybody about it. Come give me a tip. Buy a story. Buy all the stories. Or, you know, just up check on uh, iTunes. Leave good ratings and on the various podcasting channels that you listen to. That'll help out as well. And then I'll talk to you next week. Until then, though, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.